Hello and welcome to the Bulwark Sunday Next Level Interview. I'm your host, Tim Miller. On this week's pod, I have the great Amanda Shires, outlaw country songwriter, better half of fellow rocker Jason Isbell. She's featured in a recent New Yorker story about how our polarized politics have infected country music. We talk about the Jason Aldean saga, have a really heartfelt discussion about abortion and raising our kids in red states. Uh, before getting to some fun music chatter, I really adore Amanda, and I hope you'll give this one a go. But we taped the interview on Monday before the third indictment of former President Donald Trump. So I wanted to provide some reactions I have in the few hours after watching this. I still can't believe this shit is real. These images of a former president arriving in D.C. to be arraigned for four felony counts in response to the conspiracy he orchestrated against our country. As I watched it all, still in disbelief that this is really our world all these years later, I got a little razzed, as you might imagine, about a few things. But one of them was this column from David Brooks from earlier this week. was titled, What If We're the Bad Guys Here? In the article, Brooks argues that the, quote, educated laptop class and their meritocratic system of exclusion made Trumpism inevitable. He goes on uh, with the predictable laments about Latinx and cancel culture and elite colleges and some of this stuff I agree with. But towards the end, he gets at something like this. It's easy to understand why people in less educated classes would conclude that they are under economic, political, cultural, and moral assault. And why they've rallied around Trump as the best warrior against the educated class. This is such effing bullshit. It's condescending bullshit. There are people who don't know fancy cheeses nearly as well as David that still have the capacity to identify a fraud when they see one. For starters, you don't see a lot of working class black folks on board the Trump train. Uh, They're from the, quote, less educated class. But somehow people of color are totally absent from Brooks' analysis. I want you to imagine a counterfactual, an alternate universe, where an overwhelmingly black Democratic electorate nominates a corrupt racist buffoon to be their party leader. And then some New York Times columnist argues that this is defensible because of systemic racism and white privilege. If that happened, the very same assholes that make excuses for Trump voters now would call that argument woke trash. In that one instance, for once in their life, they'd be right. Because that's all the excuse-making for Trump supporters is at this point. Trash. Post-hoc trash. Donald Trump fucked over working-class people for decades. From Trump University, to his ACN pyramid scheme, to the contractors he stiffed. There are working-class people who are dead now because of vaccine conspiracies. Some are in prison because they believed his election lies. His entire life has been a fraud at the less educated class's expense. He is not their best warrior. He is a selfish pig getting propped up by other selfish cuckolds. Also, it's not just the rubes that are for Trump. The people making an ass of themselves this week defending him? It's Ivy Leaguers and ambitious politicians and billionaires and other members of the meritocratic elite. Hi, Tom Cotton. And by the way, you can't buy a boat and take it on a parade on an hourly wage. What Donald Trump has done is criminal and it's treasonous and he's a disgrace 
And all of those actions were meant only to help himself, not regular Joes from the less educated class. And there's nobody in the laptop class that can fart out any white identity critical theory to justify it. Sorry, David. Up next, I got a red state living woman who understands all that better than most. It's the great Amanda Shires. I hope you enjoy our discussion half as much as I did. She's the best. But first, our friends at Acid Tongue. Hello and welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I am here today with Amanda Shires. She's a singer and songwriter. She has a new record out with Bobby Nelson. She's a founder of The High Women, the much better half of Jason Isbell, a fiddler extraordinaire. She has a New Yorker profile about some outlaw progressive country songwriters, including Amanda, that's out recently. And she's coming at us from the barn of internal wondering. Amanda Shires, this is a dream come true. Thank you for doing this with us. Um, The dreams are all on this side of the microphone. I'm I'm jealous. I want to just rent out that barn for my next book and like just spend a week in the barn of internal wondering while you're on tour or something. That'd be great. You don't even have to rent it. You could just do it. People on the YouTube can see it in the background. It's gorgeous. Okay. For people that don't know you, I just want to start with your origin story. Teenage Amanda, as best as I can tell, was part of the Texas Playboys, uh, the Bob Wills group. You like jumped on stage with Billy Joe Shaver at some point. What gave teenage Amanda this kind of confidence to, you know, become a fiddler out on the road with these epic Texas legends so early in life? How did this come to pass? Well, I got the fiddle. I didn't even know really much about it. And my dad got it for me. And then my mom entered me into school orchestra and lessons. But I think as cheesy or whatever it may sound, I get all of my gumption, I think, from my mom, just watching her work as a single mom and just make stuff happen my whole life. You know, take us from trailers to Section 8 housing to rental houses to just working hard and trying hard and still taking all the risks and then also not backing down. So given that background, how did you get access to these kind of country legends and, you know, sort of what was the kind of beginnings of your kind of love of music and feeling that you could kind of get out there and do that? I mean, I wonder too sometimes about how and why opportunities present themselves. And um, I think about that a lot. And I think about trying to understand, you know, trying to go back and think about myself that young is hard because, you know, we didn't do a lot of thinking about intentions and what our goals were and, you know, none of this stuff really. But um, it happened organically very, and I wouldn't call it serendipity because there's a lot of, of things that have to take place for that to even work. But anyway, I think it's because, I was truly into the music. I played orchestra. I was getting bored, and I owe some of it, too, to a great teacher, my violin private teacher that I got from, you know, getting grants and scholarships, saw that I was getting bored and introduced me to a project that he was working on, which was transcribing early pre-Bob Wills fiddle tunes from a guy named Frankie McCorder, who was in the Texas Playboys. And Frankie McCorder learned from the first recorded fiddle player, Eck Robertson. So it's truly an oral tradition. And my teacher, Lanny Field, was going and learning these songs and uh, trans- uh, writing them out in finale for those folks that read music and stuff like that. But he showed me a tune, a Bob Wills tune called um, Spanish Two-Step. And I was in from there. And I think 
I got in the car, my mom's car, after the lesson and said, I'm a fiddle player now. And she was like, you can play fiddle, but you're going to still do your orchestra. And I was like, damn. So I had to do both. And um, what I liked about fiddle is that I got to um, improvise. And having had no frontal, you know, complete frontal lobe development or any kind of vocabulary for expressing my feelings, improvisation ruled my life for a minute. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted, And I knew you could do it in swing. All while at the same time maintaining my knowledge of music because I love it so much in the popular culture. Because you can't just go to school and get beat up with your fiddle and also not know that um, Mia has a song right now that's really good or the thong song is out. You will definitely get in worse trouble. So you could fiddle the thong song? You learned how to do that? I can do it all. I could even, I mean, I could play Bow Down, the West Side Connection song on my fiddle. <laughs> we'll have to do that in the post game. Um, so I'm jealous. I don't think I had your talent, so maybe that was one of my limitations. But I also didn't have that teacher. I just kind of remember being in jazz band and you know being given you know these you know the standards to play on my little gay trumpet. And uh, I just <laughs> and you know eventually I was just like, no, nah, this isn't fun. I'm going to go hang out with my friends instead. So I'm jealous. Did you know that Jason's first instrument was trumpet and he still plays? I it? did not know that. Did he never breaks it out on tour? No, he brought it out on his new record, but you can, um, when you do come here to write, you can um, play our little gay trumpets. Okay, I'm sure he's much, <laughs> okay. sure he's much better. I, g- I gave up on a post-braces. I want to fast forward. At the end, I want to dork out about you and Jason's music, but for some of the folks who, who maybe aren't as familiar. And so just fast forward through, you have a brilliant career, a couple albums I really love, To the Sunset, Take It Like a Man. But you did this all-women supergroup called The High Women. And I think folks have probably heard of some of your co-authors on that, co-performers, Maren Morris, Brandy Carlisle, Natalie Hemby. Talk about like what the origin of was that and, and like why did you decide to start The High Woman and how does that connect with your story? Um, in 2016, my daughter was about nine months old or so. And um, I was leaving to go on tour and I was still touring in a van and um, dealing with, you know, going away and coming back and what am I doing and all that. And um, on that trip in 2016, all of my, I mean, you know, the vans don't have Bluetooth, so my aux cables broke, and so I was forced to listen to the radio, and there was only two choices, sports ball or top 40 country when I was driving through the mountains. And I just started noticing that in 22 songs, I saved I saved everything I wrote while in the van, too, while I was taking notes. There was not a voice that I heard that sounded like it resonated with me or my own story. And then I called the radio station and was asking and then, you know, got into all kinds of circle talk and snake eating its own tail stuff. Well, you've got to request one on Facebook. And I was like, how do I know how to requ- who to request if I don't know one to request? And then they're like, we'll do our best. And then, you know, they played an old Carrie Underwood song and then a song by a group that had um, a couple of women in it. And that was in 50 songs. And then I started thinking... And this, this I started doing as this whole trip progressed. And um, I was like, wow, how come I never noticed this before? And then driving more and driving more, I was like, well, that's not really my lane. I do this thing that I do, Amanda Shire's music. It's different. It's, um, you know, it's uh, dark. And a little rock and roll-y. Yeah, yeah, a little rock and roll. Rock and roll. And, uh, and I was like, well, that's fine. And I was like, um, at the same time thinking, that, you know, Mercy is going around humming and playing a kazoo and uh, not brilliant at, at either one. And I was thinking, well, if Mercy went into music, she, you know, I love the life. There's, you know, made a lot of good friends and all that. And what would be the worst? And usually you hear what would be the worst. It would be 
folks say that your kids will do the opposite of what you do. Yeah. And so in that moment, I was like, oh, God, she's going to go into top 40 country. That'll be the worst. She'll be a lone island. You know, she's going to get nowhere. What are, what are we going to do? Thinking on it, I thought, you know, this is over a couple of weeks. I was like, I'm going to make a band called The High Women because Waylon Jennings was fucking cool. And, um, yeah, I thought on it for a while, and I made notes because uh, I'm a nonlinear kind of presenter with ideas. It's a, it's a, it's not my strong suit. Um, but took a lot of notes, and then finally got the nerve to tell Dave Cobb that I had this idea, and it was the high women, and I told him like you know kind of our my idea for it, and um, luckily he didn't kill my dream in that instant. He said, "This is a great idea. You should." meet Brandy Carlisle. Then we get going and meet Brandy Carlisle. We meet Natalie Hemby. We bring Marin on board and we form the band, make the record. And I think it was like 2018 we put the record out. Yeah. And it was huge success. And we're going to play a little bit of the high women for people that haven't heard it, want to listen to it. I was a healer. I was gifted as a girl. Someone saw me sleeping naked in the noon sun. I heard witchcraft in the whispers, and I knew my time had come. The bastards hung me at the Salem gallows. So that's good, but it still isn't quite top 40 pop country. No, but we did hit number one, so I got a tattoo. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> I only got to number two on the New York Times list. I, that's not quite tattoo worthy. I don't have any that's tattoo. Amazing. I don't have any tattoos. So I don't know. Number two would be a little kind of a sad tattoo. You earned that number one heart. No, anytime you're on the NYT, you're, <laughs> you're set. For, you can just go ahead and make a tick and then you can keep adding ticks. Oh, there you go. A little tick tattoo. That's something to think about. But the pop country stuff, possible, has only gotten worse since, since you acknowledged that problem. You were so right. It started out 13% representation back when I was thinking about yeah. it. And today, on some months, it's as good as 15, sometimes 16, and sometimes regresses as far back as 11%. Yeah. And so we've had recently the big uh, Jason Aldean controversy, one of our pop country favorites, um, <laughs> who uh, has a try that in a small town song out there that kind of went into my political world. Everybody has to have a take on it. The governor of Iowa is tweeting about it and, you know, things of this nature. Um, what was your kind of thought on that? I'd just like to kind of put a quarter in the machine. and It's talk. a shitty song. It's just terrible. Like, just listening to it, even if you're not thinking about politics as a human. I mean, it doesn't even sound like, like, when I turn it on, it doesn't, it's not a bop. No, it's not a bop. That's your critique. Like, firstly, it's not a good song. Secondly, like, it trumps this. The subject matter is bullshit. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it's just, it's bad all the way around. Bad song, bad songwriting, bad idea, bad video. With the high women, you know, you look back at Waylon Jennings and all these outlaw guys and like their music wasn't about, you know, screwing over marginalized. It was the opposite, right? It wasn't about like they got popularity in, in that outlaw country vein, not really doing conservative culture war shit, you know, despite the fact that they were popular in that in small towns in red America and. You know, that is kind of the direction that the country world has gone. Like, what do you attribute that to? It's a white dude supporting his white agenda, and it sucks. He's not, like, thinking very hard. Yeah. You know? You know, and the, the New York article I referenced was kind of about how just Nashville has this split now, right? Like, maybe a little bit more of a monoculture in the past with, with country, and there are different kind of styles, country and swing, and more rocky and more less. But do you feel that way, that, like, our partisan politics is, like, infecting 
the music scene, people are like dividing themselves over that? Or is that oversimplified? I mean, I think that we've come to a point in the road where we're allowed to talk and say things where we weren't before. You know, we're allowed to point things out and notice things. Um, you know, a lot of subjects, and we just kind of like, you're not allowed to say that or do that or whatever. And now everybody's like, well, fuck it. And the politics things, it's always been rough in country because you have to be like a, a, a shrouded in the flag guy. And if you are, then the old gatekeepers, uh, they help you sell your shit. They'll spend money on you, whatever, go to the golf course. But because so many of us don't get any play on that small number of radio channels really does talk to a whole lot of people, but we don't get any play on those so we can get on the internet and say what we want. And, you know, we still can sell music on iTunes and make no money from it, but people can find things and, and decide things. I think when I think about the Dixie Chicks, I think about if a dude would have done that, they wouldn't have had that problem. But I also think the only radio stations like KLLL and Lubbock, all they would do was to say, oh, we're burning their CDs. There was no hearing from the other side. And I think with technology, we're able to hear from the other sides rather than be kind of led to the mass culture of what masses are thinking, I guess. I don't know if that made any sense. This is the thing about the Dixie Chicks. I was going to ask you about this. But to show the blind nature of all of, all of that, right, and just how, like, knee-jerk the culture is, right, the stuff that the Dixie Chicks were saying about the Iraq War back in the aughts, like, it's kind of indistinguishable from what Trump's position is on that now. There's been no self-reflection. It's not like the people that have, like, moved along with that or the gatekeepers, right, the big mm-hmm. names. They haven't been like, oh, wait, we should rehabilitate the Dixie Chicks. You know, you don't see the, And you do among certain quarters, but, like, the, you know, the, the tight blue jeans, metrosexual, top 40 country guy, you know, isn't. There's been no reflection about that. It's just whatever the culture war of the moment is, is all. It's shallow. Yeah, it's, I don't know. What sucks is that you, you get a bunch of ding-dongs out there, and then they, a bunch of idiots just not thinking about anybody but themselves. I want to talk to you about Nashville, the two kind of elements of it. You can take whichever side you want first. I'm just curious about the scene. Like, in my world, there's now been this huge, like, conservative media world are adopting Nashville, right? Like, they're moving to town. Like, you have Ben Shapiro, a little guy in his cowboy hat, and Candace Owens and stuff like this. And and so the Nashville culture is evolving uh, in certain ways, probably in ways that are appealing. But I think there's probably other things about living there. Obviously, you guys have chosen to live there. You love there's some elements of it that you love. And I just kind of wonder how you think about balancing all that. I recently moved to New Orleans, um, which is a city I love, and there's a lot of things I love about it. But I've I've been getting some shit from some of our listeners and some other progressive people. They're like, why would you move to the red state with these laws and this stuff happening? And I'm like, but there are elements of yeah. it that I love. I don't want to exceed that. There's been a lot of times when I think about moving because it's not a place that serves me in any way great as a woman or many of my friends. And, and it's oftentimes, you know, ugly. But you think about that and then you think, oh, but I have fans here. You know, you feel like you feel like you need to stay because there needs to be somebody that believes like you around to help you, you know, fight another day, I guess, show up at the protests, help spread the word, you know. And it's it seems it seems a lot of times like you're not doing shit, but um, sometimes I get good messages and I'm like, well, I'll proceed another day. <laughs> warring for my bodily autonomy. <laughs> and so there's the, the musical element is still there, but do you feel somehow separate from that? This is not my world. So I know nothing about like when people say Nashville is the country music center of the world. Like, you know, I mean, you guys are playing at the Ryman and some of these classic venues, but then there's the other side. Does it feel like, oh, you can't sit with us element of, about living in Nashville between the two Nashvilles or how does that work? 
Well, we have some friends in the other scenes that we like really well and we, you know, share the same beliefs and as far as I know, the same politics and and those folks we're friendly with and, you know, we talk to and hang out with on occasion. And then there's a whole other side that we don't participate in. We don't participate in in any of any of the, the, the bullshit that doesn't, you know, I'm not going to go somewhere and be the only one like me in that disgusting room and listen to disgusting things all day because I don't set myself up for uh, daily beatings and um, what's that word? like? You know, masochist? Yeah, that. There we go. Maybe in private. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> this is a family podcast, man. Uh, no, not really, actually. Uh, <laughs> so did you feel comfortable? Like, I think about Nashville like as, you know, the bachelorette gals with the penis hats and stuff going to the bars and like there's somebody, you know, playing some country tunes. Do you feel comfortable in that setting? Like, do you get a kick out of that? Or is that just like, ugh, I stay out here in East Nashville with my people? I don't live in East Nashville. Or wherever. I'm sorry. I don't want to adopt you. You know, I, just... I moved here in 2004 and I, I was hung out in East Nashville. I lived in Tusculum and Donaldson and Hermitage and all kinds of stuff. I live in the country now. But all that to say that I like going and if I hear artists I like and the music's good, I like it. And if I wander into a place where they're they're playing Toby Keith, I'm walking the fuck out, you know. And um, that's fine. But most of those people on that side are scared of us. And I don't know why. Like, it's good to be. It's because we say what we think. I, I think it was in the New York article where you were just like, maybe we just need anarchy. Like yes. There was like some discussion of like, oh, you know, we should be, oh, we should be organizing or and. I just wonder how you process all of that. I mean, uh, you know, we have Gloria Johnson on the podcast. It looks like she's going to probably run against Marsha Blackburn. And she seems like an awesome woman. She's one of the Tennessee three who spoke out about gun control after the shooting. But I just kind of wonder how you think about all that. I mean, Tennessee's always been a conservative state, but it, it really does feel much more acute lately. Yeah, it does. Uh, in the way that they're, you know, operationalizing that maybe. Like, you know, a couple of years ago, I used to think, oh, we can turn this around. We can make people, not make people, we can have conversations with people. And lately I just get mad and I do, you get to the point where you're almost like, yeah, I do want to get in a fist fight, but I can't because I'm a 41 year old mom and I can't go to jail right now. But I, I get really angry. And right now I'm just angry. So you have done some in your art, some advocacy on political stuff, sometimes more explicit than others. One really explicit one was you guys did a song called The Problem. It's about a young couple kind of trying to decide what to do about a pregnancy. And I just want to kind of just put out there right off. I'd come from a, like, basically a pro-life background. That word makes you, that phrase makes you feel uncomfortable right yeah. now. Because I'd always kind of self-identified as pro-life. Mm -hmm. And I'd always thought about it really from the fetus's <laughs> perspective, if that makes sense. Like, mostly from a fetus perspective. We have an adopted kid. And I've been in, in rooms with, uh, with women that are kind of deciding to this. And you see the, you know, you look at the, the image on there. And I, I just, I've always been moved by that side of the argument. But I've been reflecting on that lately over for two reasons. Like one is the people that said that they were pro-life that I thought were on my side are like acting very un-pro-life lately. Like in a lot of these laws are very draconian. And like what I thought meant pro-life meant was that like five week ban and you have to carry your rapist child and like all of this extreme stuff. The other thing that I think is making me reflect all of this is that I'm like learning stuff about the mother's perspective that may be as a gay, as a privileged gay man who went to an all-boys high school, I hadn't thought as much about women, the women's perspective as maybe I should have. And one of those things, like I'm learning about things, and you tweeted about an ectopic pregnancy that you had. Am I even saying that word right? Yeah, you are. Um, we're coming up to my two-year anniversary of almost dying, August 9th, 2021. Two years. Yeah. 
it's people like you talking about that that did make a difference for me, at least, in starting to just reflect on how I should think about all of this, right? Because it was like, that was a word I'd never heard of, really, until the last two years. Same. I'm from Texas, and we weren't taught anything, you know? And when it turned out I had an ectopic pregnancy, I didn't know what the fuck that was. I didn't, I'd never heard of it. And then I was like, how could I not know about my own damn body. Yeah. It's because people need to be in control of it. And so can't. talk about like what that is and like how that relates to the abortion debate, right? Because if you have a certain, if you have a certain limit on weeks or you're banning certain types of medicines, then what that means for women with an ectopic pregnancy. Okay. Let's start first with the fact that um, people a lot of times first think that your period is the uh, end of your cycle. And that's the beginning. Um, okay, I'm starting to take ovulation. notes now. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And you're ovulating and then, you know, you can get pregnant during that time. You know, if you're ovulating 10 days after you had your period, you're not going to know that you're pregnant until you miss your next period, your period, right? And sometimes that's four to six weeks later. If you take all of the, the timeline in, could be past six, could, you know, whatever. Uh, you can also become pregnant in the wrong spot. That is like a place that's not your uterus. That would be like your fallopian tubes. I don't know. You, 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 all different kind of places that are not your uterus. <laughs> and um, that's what happened to me. Became pregnant in a fallopian tube. And, and then you have a group of cells growing. You can't see. This is, you know, eight or nine weeks. This is what, when it happened. And so it exploded my fallopian tube. Then you're internally bleeding. I have a high pain tolerance. And I was feeling weird, you know, very weird. And I played a show. And there's a physician at the show in Austin that I've, you know, there was COVID test during that time and whatever. He was already there for Sadler, making sure he didn't have COVID, Jason's guitar player. He said, you really need to come in. You don't look okay. And I was like, I just need some sleep. And he was like, what's going on with you? And I was, I described, you know, some, you know, pain, discomfort, what I thought might be an ovarian cyst because I've had those before. And they hurt when they, you know, rupture. And he's like, you really should come in. And I was like, I'm going to sleep. And in the morning, I got up to do an interview, and my knees buckled. And Jason said, we're going to the hospital. And I was like, there are people that need to be going to. There's already a flooded with COVID. He's like, no, you're going in. So I go in, been internally bleeding this whole time, and go into surgery. And um, by the God's choice, I get to live. There are some people that think that you should implant this into your uterus. It'd be a surgery. Yes. That to me sounds like putting your penis inside of your balls. Like, how is that going to work? Also, how are you going to find it? So this is, you know, eight or nine weeks. You can see by science and by the pictures that I made them take and give to me after that you have a string that's basically your fallopian tube. And so we're fighting over this now. Okay, cool. Meanwhile, 10 days later, they put some bands into effect. So now 12 women a day die from it there. Because they can't get the same They're care that Texas. I once got without getting in, in, into, yeah, you know, some kind of legal thing, you know. And not to mention if you, if you, they have a medicine that if you discover that happened sooner, that you can take that'll abort it from your fallopian tube or, right. you know, get it out of there. Because what sucks is I'm a married person. He wouldn't have had a wife or Mercy wouldn't have had a, a mother. Or, that really all sucks. But. Secondly, if I thought that I should be able to take that and get it out of my fallopian tube, comes down to trust for me. Can you trust women to make decisions for their own selves? That's what it comes down to. You know, they're going to make what the decision that's right for them might get closer to some semblance of freedom around here. Do you trust your own mom? Do you trust your own sister? Do you trust, you know? Yeah. 
it sucks to say this kind of like I'm saying this with a little bit of shame, right? It sucks to say it's like I have to hear that story in order to like evolve an opinion about this, right? But like thinking about it that way, I think it's important to tell that story because I think that there's a lot of bad faith actors on the pro-life side, as we've learned over the past fucking few years. We don't need to get into that. But for the people that come at this from a genuine place of like, I believe that's a life, right? And like, we should be protecting it, right? Like at the time of when to do that and when to, and what kind of rules like make sense, I would think that hopefully for some people, that would be a compelling story, right? To be like, hey, this is an eight or nine week thing. The light, you're say you're pro-life, the life of the mother is at risk. This has passed the time. I believe, I think Tennessee, right? Texas, Florida, a bunch, a handful of states. This is like past the period where a lot of states are having, you know, allow you to do the procedure. A lot of times when people mistake what they call the heartbeat, because there's, it's really the heartbeat of the mother or the pulsing of blood that hasn't been truly proven at that. But if you look at the little pile of stuff they took out, there's, there's no fetus in there. I've seen people have to carry fetuses that will not survive yeah and then not only does that take a toll i mean this whole shit also takes a toll on your mental health going yeah. through all this because then you don't know what's going on because you haven't been taught that then you have the recovery time which is a bitch because you can't lift anything over 25 pounds and i have a little girl that likes to be picked up yeah. <laughs> you know there's a lot of things happening then i'm out of work because this happened and there's you know thank you for sh- honestly i appreciate you sharing that i know that that's not necessarily easy and those fun thing to talk about on a Monday morning. But uh, I'm happy to talk about it. I'm actually just want to celebrate the fact that I do. I usually like turn into a big tear bag when that happens. Usually I have to go into two vape mode. Okay. Yeah, take another oh. vape. All right, I want to do one again to music. I want to do one more with the, about the daughter. Because our kids are about the same age. Mercy's a little older than my daughter. And um, obviously you had this shooting recently in Tennessee. And I just wonder how you're kind of thinking about that. Like, You've got a daughter, you guys are on tour a lot. You've got a seven year old and man, like being a parent who's there and also being in a state where all this crazy shit is happening and, and I'm looking for some wisdom from you on the parenting side of this. What I do is when there are questions, I answer the questions as far as the interest is, um, as long as she's interested. So she asks a question, I answer it. And if she wants to go further, we do, I stop where her interest stops. And that seems to work for me right now. I don't have an, a child older than seven, so um, I'm still learning, but back to the hot topic of, of, of I just want to swing back yeah, to please. this for a second, of the right to choose what you do with your body. You can look at nature and see that a bird has that freedom to kick an egg out of its nest when it deems it, you know, unviable or notices it or notices that, oh, there's too many eggs mm-hmm. or whatever the reason. If a bird can do that, then why can't a person or any other? There's a lot of songs about birds. There are birds or I mean, they co-parent. They they do all kinds of cool shit. I can I can see a better a world if I was only bur- born a bird. New pronoun bird. bird. <laughs> are you allowed to do that in Tennessee? Change your pronoun to bird now. I don't know. The popo might be at your door when you get out of this. <laughs> you can change your pronouns whatever you want. You just like people just don't <laughs> understand how simple it is. <laughs> Here they're just like, what does that mean? What does that mean? <laughs> okay. I want to get into the music stuff. So Jason um, wrote a song called Cover Me Up about him battling alcoholism and how, and you, you know, helping to save him, really. But there's a, a lot of personal stuff that happens, some ugly stuff that happens. I walked down the aisle of that song, not because of the ugly stuff, but because of the uh, line that uh, But Home was a dream, one that I've never seen until you came along. 
I felt that resonated with me with my. After all the light, we have equal amount yeah. of dark. Yes, that does resonate. Resonated with yes. my husband to come in and say hello to you before we got on. So now you can see why I felt that way um, about him. But um, yeah. Morgan Wallen now plays this song. I don't know. One day I was in my feelings and I was on TikTok and I was like, I want to like watch some of you guys doing cover me up. Like I want to like go like see some live videos of it or something. And like I searched for it and I saw it because I don't fucking do pop country. So I had no idea. I didn't even know who Morgan Wallen was. And mm-hmm. so I felt like they were all that, like all, and, and it's like oh. these huge stadiums and people are screaming. That's got to be weird for you to have all these strangers singing about this deeply personal story. It, it It's not my story if Jason's not singing it, but also, um, it's not weird, I guess, that other people cover songs. It's like been doing going on forever, and then we sure. just redirect the money to a, a cause. And people like to get on our internets and say that we're making so much money. I don't know. Let's all go into double um, um, ACP and shit. All of your stuff is just so personal. It's about your marriage. Your recent record, Take It Like a Man, you know, has a song called Fault Line about you know the fault lines in your guys' marriage and kind of navigating all that. There's one line I wanted to ask you about. Because it's so brutal. You're the song. Jason has a, a song called Flagship. I don't know, it might be The Flagship or Flagship. And you have a line in the song that says, and the character you wrote yourself out to be, the flagship, all part of my fooling. I mean, that is like a pretty brutal like line. And I've just been like, you guys, when you're on stage and because you, you play with each other and like when you're singing that, and there's got to be sometimes that you're like looking at each other and is it breaking up bad feelings? Are you getting mad at him on stage when he's singing flagship and you're over there? I don't know. I just, I, I've been dying to ask that. The way I explain it is that there's two different worlds of the music. And we both sit down and write songs as a way to explain the world better to ourselves. In that time, I was writing that song and I needed a place to put my feelings and understand them. And I also wanted to write a song that he would listen to and maybe help him and I get to some kind of ground where we can talk because we're existing, but we're not existing together. We're just opposite little music boxes twirling in different directions. Of course, I wrote it and I sent it to him. And when we write songs, we know that it doesn't have to leave this room or whatever room we write it in. We know that if we need to write a song just to get it out, we can do that and nobody ever has to hear it. I never think about what if somebody hears it because I make those decisions much later, like when I get a big pile of them. My big idea here was I'm going to explain my feelings to myself. We had a bad fight, and then I'm going to send it to him. Since I can't talk and he won't listen to me, I'll send it to him. And he didn't listen to it. And I was so mad. I was like, and I sent it to my friend Lawrence. I was like, listen to this song. And um, Lawrence was like, that is incredibly sad. We should make a record. I said, I'm not making a record. I'm just writing right now. And I don't know that that song will ever hear or be see, or you know see the light of day. And um, later on in the discussions of the song, after deciding to record it, it came off the record. It was on, off and on. Off. It was off forever. And then, then I finally was like talking to Jason. I was like, the problem with putting songs like this on here is that I'm going to probably have to talk about them. And he said, you can decide not to. You don't have to, you can, and then if you want to, as you go, you can. And I was like, okay. I said, what about that flagship line? And he was like, if it's true, leave it. And I said, okay. <laughs> but when we get on stage and do it, we've already had these conversations. So he's not giving you a stink eye while he's singing flagship? Like, now I want to go back and, like, look at him closely while I... <laughs> <laughs> no, but, like, when we... um Sometimes we laugh because it's different when you're in a good place. Yeah. Because you're like, oh 
past self, you should have known better. But no, because uh-uh, once you've been there, you've been there. But um, when we get on stage, that's different. We're playing the song. And sometimes on stage, those songs are difficult for me to sing. And um, what I do is I just uh, try to imagine, hey, maybe somebody else feels this way and doesn't know how to say it. So you're helping somebody. You're not in that same spot right now. I have to, like, talk myself up into it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I tell him, like, you leave it all on stage, like, separate on stage. Yeah. So when you're doing the writing to that, and so you're writing these songs, and so when you say you're sending them to him or sending them to your friend Lawrence or whoever, like, does that mean you're sending the lyrics just, or, or you have a tune, a, a simple version of the tune, or you have it done, basically, and you're sending it to him? Like, what, at what point in the process? <laughs> I made a demo and um, sent it over there. Um, a demo with just a basic mic, usually, like, this sure mic, something like this, and you know, just real basic, whatever gets the job done. Cause usually by the end of songwriting, you just want to escape the whole scene you were in and yeah. just take a walk. <laughs> um, your songwriting is so meticulous. And um, I, ha- I got the biggest laugh. I don't know if you did out of there's a HBO doc recently about you guys, I guess Jason, <laughs> Jason technically, but there's a running with our eyes yeah. closed. But uh, there was a lyric that he said, and it was, like the usage was quite right. He was saying a phrase that was not accurate, mm-hmm. and it got a little, it got a little snippy, right? Because you were like, "Well, that doesn't, that doesn't mean what you're saying that it means." And so, it, like, mm-hmm. I get that you want to, that it sounds nice or whatever, but like it's like this. And then I went back and looked at some of your lyrics, and you, you are, like, I feel like I want you to be an editor for me a little bit. Like, do you feel like you could be an editor in another life? You are very meticulous in your songwriting, more so than I think maybe other writers. Is that fair? Yeah. I, that's fair. I am. Um, but when we're dealing with um, feelings and they're so hard to explain already, it's um, let's get the words right as best we can. And if we're speaking from a character voice, then that's different. But um, I, you know, Jason and I will share our songs and um, with each other in reunions and he waited till the last minute. So it had to be done there. But, um, then on this next record, I, I stayed out of it for the most part, except for on two. But I just couldn't hold the line he wanted me to hold it. That's fine. But um, I had to tell him. But anyway, so. What did you have to tell him? Just that it was inaccurate or that it wasn't, was, like he had a plural wrong or what? what he had the no, word it was, meaning it was, right? it was bigger than that. It was bigger than that. It was avoiding the topic. And no. um, he says part of that he loves about me because I'm not scared of him. And I'm only trying to serve the art i'm not trying to gain anything in his songwriting i don't want you know what i mean i'm just yeah. we do that for each other removing ourselves from it that he can be more competitive than me and, and likes being competitive so I, I try to be sometimes but not um anyway so uh it's about serving the art and, and if 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 you say you are serving the art then you should you know you know do it right and if you decided that you wanted me to help say something sometimes and i should because i said i would and i do what i say i'm gonna do and um all you that. took a master's in writing or something right like i mean you've really focused on making oh a, yeah a, i got an mfa from sawani, an MFA from sawani. Mm-hmm. well you're and maybe that's why you're militaristic in the ways that the verses come out i'm free in my own space it's the outside world i don't get to be so i exercise it as if you know i'm a man running around my house um okay we're running out of time i've got a few fun rapid fire on three in the end but i have to ask you you just did a record with bobby nelson willie nelson's sister like and i just 
I don't really have a question except for that's got to be really cool. And like, tell us about it. <laughs> I just wanted to celebrate her. Is um, She passed away, but our original plan was to make a record because it started out, we really had a good time together and we wanted to go shopping and we wanted to play shows together, these songs that we grew up playing and that we loved. And um turned out to, to that we, for touring, we'd, we'd need to have a record. And then we made a record and... um have a beautiful collection of songs and um, celebrate the, you know, the music. And then she passed away and it, it's now become celebration of, but I was already celebrating her as a um, sideman and mother and woman because her life was beautiful, but, you know, harrowing. And so we celebrate this woman who, who, you know, got her kids taken away for playing in bars, got them back, lost two sons within six months of each other. And, still found joy in music and maintained a place for music in her life. And um, people like her that have done the, the work before that afford us the um, the space that we have now, no matter how small that space feels sometimes. Is there a particular track from the record that resonated with from you? I would like to just play a little bit for podcast listeners. I mean, summertime gets me just, just in the fact that they, you know, they were orphaned and, um, you know, all, all the stuff that happened with her family and, and her kids and everything in this kind of um, summertime and the living's easy. It's kind of, it could be seen as like an idyllic, romanticized version of summertime and your mother and dad, you know, being there for you. But it, to me and in, in her spin, it's darker. It's It kind of shades and paints differently. And I think that um, we both think it's a beautiful song. I think it, it says more and is more multi-layered as far as, as, as her story and many stories are. Summertime, Summertime And the living's easy Fish are jumping And the cotton, cotton is high Oh, your daddy's rich yeah, your mama's good looking. Speaking of Bonte I lied. I have one more question. The, the headless track, your last track, to Take It Like a Man, that is also like that, right? It, is, it has it has one kind of meaning at face value, but I, I don't think that's one you mean. So just, just maybe talk about that a little bit. <laughs> um, You know, the, the title is what it is. It's about taking it like a man. It's about the... about. Really what it's about is there's actually more strength than being vulnerable. And there's, um, when you make choices in, in, in your life with, with love or, or with anything, you know, there's going to be consequences and, um, yeah, you can take it like a man or not. A lot of young men aren't getting that message that, <laughs> okay, that, that okay. being a man is being vulnerable. I don't think a lot of, I think a lot of young men are learning the wrong message in, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. from the tight blue jeans and, you know, pick up truck crepes. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah, I mean. So hopefully we can have the take it like I'm into uh, a message <laughs> resin, start to resonate with a few more folks. Um, okay, I have rapid fire. It's just going to be fun. Are you ready? Sure. We're closing it out. I love rap- rapid fire. My favorite lyric from this record, uh, just because, uh, oh, wait, maybe, I'm sorry, it was from the, to the, the previous record, uh, to, uh, to the sunset, just because it's so brutal and hilarious, is uh, about an ex of yours, I think. It was, I'm rock and roll and you're golf. <laughs> Uh, so i'm looking for you from you for either a favorite lyric of your own that you want to share or just a little riff on why you hate golf golf is just full of people that have 
nothing in common with you in general. I mean, Willie Nelson does play some golf. I don't know that he actually plays golf, but probably just smokes weed. I used to be uncomfortable about trying to identify things that I liked about my own work, but um, I'm kind of, I'm all right with it. I'm, I'm kind of happy with um, the um, line. I need more words for blue because it's so true. There's not enough words for it. I'm, I'm okay with, with some of my lines. I'm glad you're getting comfortable, you know, all this success. You should finally be listening. <laughs> it just feels weird to be like, oh, like uh, it does feel a little weird. Okay. <laughs> uh, I saw you at Red Rocks when you opened for Jason. Such, I'm from Denver, so I grew up. And so that was very memorable, my favorite venue. But do you have a favorite venue? A favorite, like, spot of, God, this was so awesome to do this. Something that felt especially magic. After COVID and after I almost died, I am grateful to be anywhere it could be just in the local restaurant like singing karaoke i'm uh, happy about all that and that's not a joke that's serious like i'm grateful we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow but um red rocks is amazing i'm a big fan of indoor shows though same <laughs> i like the outdoor ones they're great but i like indoor i like i like the uh, the ryman's great um there's a place in brooklyn the king's theater i like that place a lot I, I, I tend to like the indoor ones because um, I feel like you can control the environment more. Your husband's Twitter habit in one sentence or less. His Twitter habit is yeah. jokes. I got yeah. off Twitter, but um, he's really good at it. It's like I paint for fun. He does Twitter for fun. <laughs> this is why I think that resonates with me most of him. I'm addicted to it. He can't help himself. I feel about myself. and it's not. I don't think that's healthy, actually, but I can't help myself. He'll be out there. He was out there dunking on Paul's chief of staff this week. And I'm like, what are you doing, man? Like, why are you doing that? When he's on the road like he is now, he has more time for it because much of the day is spent waiting, either riding on the bus or waiting in line or in a plane or something. So he has, when he's at home, you'll see like a decline of tweets. I feel, start to feel really bad when I'm like playing Candyland with Luce and then I'm also sending tweets. I'm like, I need to be a little more present for this moment. Okay. You're so beautiful just talking about your mother. So my final rapid fire question for you is just a piece of advice from your mother and her life that you carry with you. It's better to be green and growing than ripe and rotten. Or if you aren't green and growing, you're ripe and rotten. Are we still green and growing or are we starting to ripen? I think it's the purpose of life. I mean, we all came from these little seeds and we grow much like a flower and then we start to decline into our wilt. Amanda Shires, this has just been a delight. We've back in your record all week. My husband um, has been forcing me to, to do it for prep and I've just been enjoying every minute of it. So thank you so much for, for your wisdom and for your music and uh, hope to see you out on the road. Aww, thank you.